From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this is Chewing the Fat. We're a podcast that covers people and ideas making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. This week, we're featuring an episode from the archives. YSFP alum Austin Brunarski chats with Teresa Marez, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Vermont. Her research interests in food and migration studies had led her to write her book, Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont, published in April of this year. Austin had the chance to chat with Teresa when her book was still in the works. Her visit was part of a previous Chewing the Fat series on racial justice and food, supported by the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. Listen in to their conversation about the lives of migrant dairy workers in Vermont, activist scholarship, and much, much more. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Austin. So before we get into your current research, Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in how you got to this intersection of disciplines. Yeah, so I'm a pretty dyed-in-the-wool anthropologist. I did my first anthropological field work as an undergraduate student involved with a project looking at informal economy, sustainability issues, actually on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And through that, I became very convinced about the importance of local ethnography. Mm-hmm. We were My undergraduate institution was fairly close to Pine Ridge, And um, while so much anthropology takes place overseas, and I think there's valuable, really great work um, that can be done in that way, I was really intrigued by the idea of using that discipline in a much more local context. So I went to graduate school, and um, as with most graduate students, I had the best laid plans that quickly changed Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I got to uh, the University of Washington in 2003. And um, my undergraduate work was in anthropology and Latin American studies as well as Spanish, and I was really interested in the ways in which people connected to natural resources, connected to their environments. And as a graduate student, um, this was as food studies in its current iteration was really sort of taking off. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really intrigued. I started looking at what was happening in Seattle with respect to um, the local food movement, what was happening with respect to immigration. And um, looking at food became a really powerful way to understand um, the connections between identity and inequality, um, environmental concerns. And migration, or looking at migration through that lens of food, um, allows us to think about multiple places at the same time. So my graduate work really started looking at um, how urban agriculture specifically was made accessible or not so accessible to immigrant communities in the Seattle area. Um, There's a very, very well-developed set of urban agriculture projects in Seattle that certain immigrant communities are connecting in with really well, um, especially resettled refugee communities. For uh, Latino and Latina populations, um, that wasn't happening to the same degree. I was hopeful that it was, um, but it wasn't necessarily uh, following that same pattern. And so um, my initial interest in urban agriculture then branched out to how are immigrants relating to the food system in general. So my dissertation research was really looking at food access for um, immigrant communities, how diets were changing, how gender played in. Um, if and when people were using um, urban agriculture efforts, what did that look like? And that was all through the the perspective of looking at people who were involved in the food system as consumers, mm-hmm. um, not producers. Um, when I moved into Vermont, uh, I had a, a set of decisions to make because it's a very different demographic context. Right. Um, and if I wanted to continue working and looking at migration from Latin America 
it wasn't going to be an urban context um, like it was in Seattle. So the new project um, that I'll be talking about while I'm here is really um, engaging with an ethnographic approach to understanding food access within food workers, um, specifically farm worker populations. And that's not necessarily a, a very well-known part of Vermont's history, um, mm-hmm. or at least um, it wasn't until the past few years when there's been some really good organizing efforts that are happening. So uh, did anything surprise you in your research in Seattle in particular? Yeah, um, a lot of things surprised me. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think the the initial interest in urban agriculture allowed me um, to be surprised by was... Um, the lengths to which people will go to remain connected to food and how certain, you know, barriers of language, of racial inequality, of gentrification have a really uh, consequential impact on some of those um, desires to remain connected to food. Um, But amidst that, I think uh, when we, you know, broadly, when we look at immigration, of course, this is an interesting moment to be thinking about immigration uh, politically. Um, But I think oftentimes, Immigrant communities sort of in the mainstream context are often understood as sort of always in a position of lacking things, right, or being confronted with barriers. And I think overarching uh, source of surprise for me has been all of the amazing resilience and creativity and inventiveness that people um, engage in a daily basis, especially with relationship to what they're eating and how they're getting that food. So um, that was definitely in Seattle sort of a a good wake-up call for me to look at both Um, barriers, but also um, the opportunities that people have and the opportunities that people create. And that's followed me into the the current project as well. And are you seeing a similar resilience sort of bear out in? Yeah, in some degrees. Yeah. Um, I think one of the one of the distinctions that is becoming very clear is is an urban rural distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though Seattle is not necessarily the same kind of migration destination as other larger cities, um, there is a longer history of migration from Latin America into the state of Washington. And that has had a real impact on the built environment, the kinds of stores that are there, the kinds of organizations that are there, um, the kinds of people that are involved in some of the farmers markets. Mm. Um, whereas looking at Vermont as a very rural state um, and the majority of um, people from Latin America are living in rural areas, that migration pattern is much newer and it hasn't yet had the same kind of impact on um, the institutions and the resources that are available in the state. Um, and I'll I'll talk a little bit about this, but even the simple act of making tamales, um, this is something that I often use as the ethnographic vignette to, to demonstrate how these places are different. Um, when you try to make tamales in Seattle, you go to one store, you can get everything and you can make them, hmm. you know, within an hour, mm-hmm. although then it will take you several hours to do that. Um, when I've tried to make them in Vermont for different community events I'm involved with, it often requires going to 12 different grocery stores hmm. because we don't see that same kind of foodscape that we have in Seattle. And what else makes Vermont such an interesting context in which yeah. to study this, right? I, th- I know it's mm-hmm. commonly referred to as the whitest state yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, we flip-flop with Maine um, okay. <laughs> for uh, the least diverse state in the country. Um, so there is the the general whiteness of the state um, that, coupled with the rural nature of it, makes communities of color, especially in rural areas, very visible. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that's a very different thing than you would see in an urban context, um, even in Seattle, which is a very, very segregated city in a lot of ways. Um, so the I think the rurality coupled with the whiteness of the state is particular. Um, there's also something politically 
that is really interesting to me, which is about how we have a state that's really progressive, right. you know, in a number of ways. And I think, you know, Bernie's um, Bernie's unfortunately short campaign um, revealed, I think, nationally how progressive Vermont is in a number of really important ways. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're a border state. And so no matter how progressive we might be with respect to immigration policy or immigration, not even policy, but immigration attitudes towards immigrants in the state, that doesn't change the fact that we we are at a federal border mm-hmm. and Border Patrol is very active in the places where farm workers are working and living. And even though Washington state is a border state and there are places of Washington state that are seeing those same kinds of heightened surveillance by um, Border Patrol, the urban context versus the rural context makes that a lot different mm-hmm. um, in terms of how people can either blend in or not blend in. Um, so those are the things that I think they're really interesting about it. Also, Vermont, especially as the local food movement has, you know, gotten so much traction and, you know, is now increasingly critiqued for a number of really important reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vermont is a place where local food is exceptionally prevalent. You know, farm to, you can't, I often joke, you can't throw a stone without hitting a farm to table restaurant. And some really great work is happening with respect to um, relocalization efforts, the farm to plate network. And at the same time, the majority of our agricultural revenue in the state comes from the dairy industry. Mm-hmm. We're the most dairy dependent state in the country. And that dairy is largely industrial. So at the same time that you have these really interesting localizing efforts, these, um, you know, even community gardening initiatives, all of the things that are uh, heralded by the local food movement, we have a very active industrial food system operating alongside that. So where I was initially brought into food studies because of that excitement around sustainability Mm -hmm. and, you know, relocalization and how that leads sometimes to community cohesion. Now I'm looking at the industrial food sector, which was, was kind of surprising to me. I didn't really anticipate that's the direction I would go, but it's been a really good opportunity to, learn about how important context, both geographic and cultural and economic context, the importance of that for understanding um, people who move for work. So how does your work sort of undergird some of those critiques of the broader, uh, whatever you want to call it, food movement, local food movement? Um, Because I think a lot of those are, Mm -hmm. you know, talked a lot about and have a lot of evidence behind them. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested to see how your ethnographic work in particular yeah, um, um, wrestles with it. Yeah. So I think one of the ways that I've written about this is I think oftentimes we have a very narrow and um, U.S.-centric definition of what local means. Mm. Um, and I think when we look at the foodways of migrant communities, we can understand, we we are stretched a little bit to think about how do people um, recreate local in a new environment, how do people involved in global migration networks right. <laughs> um, connect in with the no- local? And what are the ways in which local food discourses often exclude understandings of multiple relationships to the local? So in one of my pieces, I, I talk about sort of what happens when the local is not your local, right? What happens when your local is a small village in Chiapas? And you're momentarily suspended in a different place because you're, you've moved to work. So I think that that's one of the things. I think also, obviously, the accessibility question. Um, and there's such a good body of scholarship and popular writing now about uh, the ways in which the local food movement um, has become 
out of reach for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. um, right? Or at least buying into that as a consumer has become out of reach for a lot of people. Um, And that's where both food justice movement activism and scholarship has taken a good series of critiques around the accessibility question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really important. But at the same time, you know, all of this, I, I get into a lot of discussions with my students about this, that, you know, we pay such an artificially price artificially low price for our food. And so, you know, price is not the best barometer (laughs) also for understanding accessibility. But in some of the work, for example, I've done some work in in the county in Vermont that I live in, Chittenden County. And part of what we were trying to understand through that project was how do people essentially access food and what are their relationships and their experiences like with different elements of the food system? And over time, you know, what I realized is for the new American communities that are in the Burlington area, um, a lot of them from Burma, uh, Nepali Bhutanese communities, as well as low income or working class Vermonters, going to a farmer's market is not the most friendly of places. Um, what do you mean by friendly? Well, literally friendly. <laughs> yeah, like- <laughs> um, yeah, that I, I remember hearing a story from this woman explaining how, you know, there's there's so many great efforts to open up access to SNAP benefits, or mm-hmm. in Vermont, we call it three squares. Um, and this woman described this experience of kind of bravely venturing into the farmer's market uh-huh. boundary and being really excited about the possibility of using of using those benefits at the farmer's market. And they do the double your dollars things, right. those kinds of things. Um, and she, from a farmer, basically experienced this really... Um, sort of humiliating um, experience where the farmer's like, oh, this is this is essentially a, a pain in the butt for me. And um, wow, yeah. And she was like, I don't want to go back, you know, even if though it was one farmer in a, in a place of a hundred vendors, um, that experience of being sort of out of place in that kind mm. of, in that kind of a retail outlet or, you know, community event, depending on how you look at it, um, was really long lasting for her. And she's like, I'll never go back to a farmer's market because of that experience. And so I think the ways in which local food has become elite in a number of ways leaves a lot of people out. But at the same time, there's people that are reclaiming that and so much important food justice work that isn't, you know, not even giving that a chance to <laughs> to take hold, yeah. which is which is also more exciting, I think, actually. Do you see your scholarship as a form of activism? <laughs> That's really funny. So I'm I'm right now my tenure files due today. <laughs> and Congratulations. I was, and I was reading some of the um some of the external review letters for my tenure file and I I will often call my work applied scholarship hmm. or engaged scholarship or community-based scholarship. And in I think three or four of the letters, a lot of them were saying, "Oh, she's doing some important work in activist scholarship." So I think it's being interpreted like that, um, and cool. I'm totally fine with that. Um, I think it's it's a very difficult balance to be oriented towards an activist form of inquiry and also engage with really rigorous, you know, social scientific sort of um, expectations. And mm-hmm. so, I I try to toe that line quite a bit. And in my personal life and my volunteer life, you know, I've engaged in a number of different ways that connect with my scholarship indirectly and sometimes directly. But I would say, yeah, um, I think if activist scholarship is about um, challenging assumptions, if it's about um, highlighting injustice, if it's about um, raising an awareness of things that are often hidden, then mm-hmm. sure, I'm, I'm guilty of it. <laughs> okay. So I think those three points um, are really useful in 
sort of understanding um, the ways people experience mm-hmm. hunger. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are like a number of stereotypes mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, people on food stamps are mm-hmm. lazy, you know, you can say whatever you want and yep. it's a terrible stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering how your research in particular mm-hmm. ruptures those narratives and how um, particularly the demographic that you're yep. working with. So one of the things that um, I've written a little bit about and I've thought about is how in some of those critiques that bring on or challenge some of those stereotypes around um, individuals who make use of food-based entitlements, WIC, SNAP, whatever it happens to be at the federal level, those are always inherently uh, embedded in conversations with citizenship, Mm. right? And uh, I think that's obviously a really important conversation. I think, you know, challenging those kinds of stereotypes is really important. But the most, most of the people that I work with, while their children might qualify for certain benefits um, because they were born in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, very few of the individuals that I'm currently working with can make use of those programs. Um, and very few people that I've worked with in Seattle were able to make use of those programs. And, you know, that's a bigger, broader conversation around around citizenship and rights and those kinds of things. But I think what I've been really drawn into and where I see, it, I don't think it's necessarily sidestepping the issue, but it's a, it's a different issue, which is why are so many people that are actively producing food, actively cooking food, actively driving food around themselves some of the most hungry people in this country, right? right? And that, that that's this contradiction that I think is really, is really troubling. That if we look at rates of food insecurity for farm workers, you know, the, the research has shown that it can be as high as three to four times the national average. Hmm. If we look at restaurant workers, you know, Rock United and Food Chain Workers Alliance have done some really good work looking at how restaurant workers are hungry and how that shift meal is often maybe the only meal that they're getting during the day. So I think that that is one of these really violent contradictions of our food system is that people who feed others are often not feeding themselves or are not able to feed themselves. And in in the work that I'm looking at in Vermont, you know, the majority of people that I am involving in this research and engaging, you know, the narratives that I'm looking at are are from dairy workers um, supporting some of the most iconic industries in Vermont, you know, mm-hmm. Ben and Jerry's and Cabot Cheese. <laughs> you know, those are big Vermont brands. And at the same time, you know, in a 70-hour work week or a 14-hour workday, food insecurity becomes a pretty prominent challenge often. Mm-hmm. Um, and having agency and control over the kinds of food that you're eating in a work environment or in a in a livelihood that makes that really challenging. Hmm. So I'm really interested um, in your methodologies. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk about those generally, but how do you navigate sort of your relationship with the people that you're interviewing? Those are great questions. Those are really, really, I I love talking about methods um, because, well, for a lot of reasons I teach about it. And I also, I love working with students as they develop their own research projects. But so I'm an anthropologist. I'm, I'm an anthropologist like that likes to use mixed methods. And so, you know, the the tried and true model of using ethnography and all of the diverse tools of ethnography involving, you know, community mapping, participant observation, interviews, both formal and informal, all of those things are very important to me. What I've started thinking through with this project is a question of methodology, because if we look at how food security is actually measured and quantified, mm-hmm. 
most of the data, both you know, through the annual reports from the from the USDA Economic Research Service, as well as any of the state level data, it's always based on this thing called the the Household Food Security Survey module. Um, it's a survey that is designed to be rapid. Um, 16 questions. You don't even get through all of the 16 questions if there's no children in the household. Hmm. And the way that it's formulated, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. You can you can achieve really large sample sizes. You can conduct them over the phone. But the way that the questions are oriented are really built upon this assumption about food security being only connected to having or not having money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a little bit of data or a little bit of inquiry in that survey about nutritious food. But what I'm seeing as a as a social scientist that's engaged and interested in more qualitative work is there's so much nuance to that. And so um, currently the project that I'm working on couples all of these deeper ethnographic techniques with using the survey in order to problematize the survey. Right, right, right. Um, because we don't have any baseline data up until this point on food security for Vermont's farm workers. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to establish that. And surprisingly, on paper, using that survey, it's not as bad as I expected to see it. That's good news. It's good news. Um, but if you actually then go further and talk to people about, okay, well, on the survey, you say that you don't have, um, you have enough money to buy food. They're like, well, we have enough money. But if someone cannot go shopping for us, if the delivery driver doesn't bring our Mexican products onto the farm, if we have an early frost and our garden freezes, these are all the dynamics that aren't accounted for in that really quantitative mm-hmm. measurement. So I try to triangulate different qualitative and quantitative work in this current project, as well as uh, building upon and connecting it in a, in a community-based way. So as you might expect, if you want to do work in a very rural state, very geographically isolated state with people who are likely to not have citizenship, your presence on a farm is going to be questioned, Yeah. right? Um, so one of the things that I have found really helpful is, and not just helpful, but it's an important set of obligations that I want to follow, is that through my work, what I've always tried to do is connect with organizations or efforts that are already happening mm-hmm. in that community. So the ethnography that I'm doing is completely connected to and inseparable from my work with a project called Worthless, which is a, a kitchen gardening project that installs kitchen gardens with farm workers at the homes where they're living or at the dairy farms where they're usually living. And so that project and my research have only really been possible because of my colleague um, whose name is Naomi Wolcott-McCausland. She works with UVM Extension. She comes from a dairy farming family. Her parents are known You know, she stills milking cows, you know, so she's embedded in the community in a way that I wasn't, especially being a a new person to Vermont in 2011. And so my research in an effort to really figure out, was this a relevant project? And in the meantime, while I figure that out, if I can actually do some work on the ground, Mm -hmm. um, that has always been connected with this applied project that Naomi and I now co-direct, the gardening project, which I just talked about. And... That has opened up so many opportunities because I'm able to build on the trust that Naomi has already established. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we are facilitating that for our graduate students and our undergraduate interns. And I think that that's one of the biggest things is that anthropology doesn't have the prettiest history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, the the links between anthropology and a broader colonial project mm-hmm. have been often, often criticized. But I think there's also a lot of power within an anthropological approach to challenge some of that 
and to make um, projects that are relevant and needed, you know, at the community level. So that's sort of the broader methodological approach. And then the methodology or the specific methods that I'm using are mixed methods that try to get different kinds of data. Mm -hmm. Do you see um, any room to like go to the USDA and be like, actually, these are the questions you should be asking. Um, And how do you sort of use your scholarship as an entry point to yeah. like make recommendations to the world around you. Yeah. So that's, um, that's something that is, is the end goal of this project um, that will be the applied component is I, I'd like to recommend a different kind of measurement tool because there's a number of reasons um, that that survey is, is inadequate. The, the f- exclusive focus on money um, is one of them, but also the fact that, it has a very narrow definition of what a household means. Mm-hmm. And for many migrant communities or migrant households, you have two households that you're supporting. And so what I'd like to do through this project is actually redesign, um, even if it is a, a lengthier kind of instrument or something that takes a bit more time, I w- I'd like to design something that goes a bit deeper into some of those questions. And um, I do think that um, the USDA and specifically organizations like NIFA, um, the National Institutes for Food and Agriculture, they do some really great work around the Community Food Project Program. Um, I think there is going to be a level of receptiveness to that. Hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. Um, in Vermont, how I've tried to sort of speak back or at least complicate what we understand about food insecurity in the state is through doing a lot of public presentations. Mm-hmm. So we have a really great organization in Vermont that works statewide called Hunger Free Vermont, and they do advocacy for um, school meals and all kinds of different legislative efforts that will hopefully improve the conditions for people experiencing hunger in the state. So they have these uh, hunger councils that work in the at the county level that bring together people from the public schools that mm-hmm. bring together you know a wide variety of stakeholders, and so. Uh, this spring, I did in summer. I did a series of presentations about okay, well, here's this other side of food insecurity that's happening, and I was really excited about how people were really receptive to that. Oh, good. Um, because you know, in the public schools, we are starting to see the children of farm workers not just enter school but going into middle school, and I think that they were really interested in having a better sense of some of the home dynamics um, that some of those kids are experiencing. So, I'd like to propose a different method to understand um, migrant food insecurity. But I also think it's been really important for me to connect in with people who can actually do something about that mm-hmm. within within the institutions that are active. So. You mentioned that there are, you work with a number of undergraduate interns mm-hmm. and obviously you teach undergrads, but yep. I'm curious about how um, not only you've been engaging students mm-hmm. in your work, but also sort of how their um, perception or understanding or yeah. excitement about these issues has yeah. changed over time. Yeah, so it's it's so exciting right now to be teaching on food. Um, part of it, so I think I taught my first class called Food, Culture, and Politics, or I think that was food, the Yeah, I think that was food, the title. Politics, and Culture. Yeah, something something along those lines. <laughs> always a list of three yes, nouns. always. Um, so th- I, f- I first started teaching about food in 2005 when I I just received my master's. I was doing summer classes at the University of Washington. And now it's 11 years later. And I'm so excited that right now the the ways in which a renewed attention to food systems has really, um, it's really made students come into the classroom at a very different level than they were 11 hmm. years ago. And I can go deeper into conversations that 
we could only get to at the end of the semester. Right, right, right. right. Like so the I, baseline is so much higher. Yeah, and and you know, such good scholarship to draw upon now, especially, you know, so many good books coming out around food and labor and food and race and food and gender, all of these things. Do you have any like recommendations yeah. oh, really gosh. quickly? Yeah. So I in, right like now top three. Sure. So my my top three right now that I'm using, um, I use a book in my um anthropology class, my introductory class. Um, which is Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies by Seth Holmes, mm-hmm. medical anthropologist. Um, in my uh, food and labor class, I've been using Behind the Kitchen Door, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily a product of academic yeah, scholarship, right. more... but so, so well done. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really great book. Um, and mm-hmm. I think probably the other one that's been really useful right now in this moment is Labor in the Local War mm-hmm. um, by Maggie Gray. She's coming later this month. Oh, semester. great. Yeah. She, um, that's, that's a really relevant book for students in Vermont. Um, and I think it does a really good job at troubling what we mean by local again. So I think we have a, a set of scholarship that is making the classroom so much more dynamic right now um, in terms of how I engage students. So UVM has an undergraduate program, now a major in food systems, a minor in food systems, a master in food systems, and a PhD in food systems. Um, I think we might be one of the first universities to have it all all of those levels. And while I'm in the anthropology department, which is an undergraduate-only program, I've been really involved with the graduate program and have advised three students that have gone through that program. And one of the things I think that has been really exciting for me is to bring students who are often not from Vermont, UVM, it's 70 to 75% out of state, mm-hmm. um, wow. even though it's a public university. Uh, we're a very small state. <laughs> uh, so a lot of students come to Vermont with a, a set of understandings of what Vermont's going to be like. And especially Burlington, it's often called the Burlington bubble. Um, if you don't get outside of Burlington, those assumptions might not be challenged. Right. So what has been really rewarding is involving students um, as interns with Huertas or as research assistants one of our early interns with Worthus then ended up finishing her master's in food systems just a couple of months ago. And it's been really rewarding to have students that have a really strong passion around food systems and to get them out into the field and have them challenge some of those assumptions. Um, that's been really, really rewarding because I'm doing the same thing <laughs> along alongside them often. So I think that that's one of the the things that has been really exciting. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in honors thesis at the undergraduate level um, in anthropology on food-related issues. Uh, you, we have myself and another food anthropologist, Amy Trubeck, at UVM. So there's a lot of anthropological interest right now, mm-hmm. um, which has been really, really fun to be involved with. And I think that what's a little bit different now about teaching about food, again, is students are at a different starting point. But now they're starting to be jobs, <laughs> and they're starting mm, to mm-hmm. um, they're starting to be a broader recognition of the kinds of skills that those students are developing through those kinds of majors and um, you know or projects that will then carry them into employment after graduation. So we've had some really great luck with some of our graduates from the master's program getting amazing jobs working in the food system, um, and my undergraduates as well. So it's exciting to see them actually able to use some of those skills and um, be rewarded for them with paid employment. Mm -hmm. Um, That's always a good thing. Um, But I think, you know, it's right now I I teach um, a class on food and culture, a class on food and gender. I teach a class on food and labor. And those classes will fill up in the first few hours of registration being open. So it's a good sign. Yeah. Students are wanting to talk about these things. And 
whether they're going to be working or involved in the food system, they are going away with a a broader set of questions about their role as consumers, which I think is really important. How has writing your book been going? It's been good. Um, so it's under review right now. I I have the proposal and the introduction under review currently. I've been getting a couple of responses to that. They've been exciting to read. Um, always, you know, places to work and areas for improvement. But I think what I'm sensing is that, you know, when we look at when we look at Latino studies or Latinx studies at the national level and border studies and food studies, there's not a lot of pieces that connect those. And a lot of Latin American or Latinx studies have been really focused on traditional destinations of migration, the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, mm-hmm. that is. You know, there is some good work that's about the Midwest. But Vermont is one of those places that when I talk about migration, people are like, wait, what, Vermont? <laughs> um, so I think that there's been some really good interest and reception in the project already. Um, I hope to be on sabbatical next year is the plan, and we'll be um, busy working at it. Um, We have a little bit more data to collect. There's a few really exciting things that are happening with respect to uh, farm worker organizing, a few not-so-great things that are happening with increased detention of farm worker organizers in Vermont. And so I want to stay attuned to those things that are very recent, but hope to have a full draft by the end of next year. Awesome. Yeah. And can you give us the full title? Yeah, it's called The Other Borders Sustaining Farm Workers in the Dairy Industry or in Vermont's Dairy Industry. That's TBD. Right. TBD, yeah. We'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. How are you seeing, I think there's like a lot of movement mm-hmm. um, in labor organizing, particularly mm-hmm. on the West Coast right now. Sort oh, of yeah. As we know it. Um, yeah. How are you seeing, like, are you seeing your work? and the folks mm-hmm. that you're working with mm-hmm. interfacing with that at all? Is there any yeah. sort of like trans state? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There is. So if we look at what's happening with, or even know, in Florida. With, yeah. 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 So what's happening with the Driscoll's boycott and the, the organizing within fruit producing farms up in the Northwest, um, which was just outside of Seattle, mm-hmm. North of Seattle, mostly. So, you know, there's been some really important work that's happening along the West Coast with different um, workers within the supply chain of Driscoll's. The Driscoll's boycott, the Driscoll's organizing is really active. In Vermont, what's really exciting is there's an organization called Migrant Justice, and it's a community-based organization organized and led by farm workers. And they've been um, engaging, and they're now part of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. So they're having very active conversations with the CIW. And the Immokalee workers, um, they've had very active conversations with um, people engaged in labor rights and food sovereignty in Maine. Their organizers have been part of these national working groups around these issues. And I think, you know, alongside the Fight for 15, which, you know, engages people in the food system, not often farm workers. Right. Um, although the Fight for 15 and Rock United and Food and Chain Workers Alliance, they're all having conversations in, in close proximity. The next kind of step that I think we're going to see is building upon successful models in other places. So, for Mm. example, the Penny for a Pound campaign that has now gotten so much great attention and has been really successful in a number of ways is starting to inspire uh, food workers in other places or isn't starting to. It has it has inspired them. And I think we're starting to in Vermont, hopefully see the, the results of some of those connections. And I think that that's super important because you know, if we if we look at a product 
for example, Ben and Jerry's, right? The milk is coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the vanilla, the, often the fair trade vanilla or the fair trade coffee is coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. The fruit is coming from somewhere. And I think one of the big challenges and opportunities within food chain work is an ability for people involved along that chain to recognize each other's struggle and, and stand with each other's struggle. And that's where the Food Chain Workers Alliance has been so incredibly helpful in making those connections very visible. Um, mm-hmm. I use, in my food and labor class, I often refer to their report as the Bible of the class. Mm-hmm. It's what starts us, it's what ends us, and it gives us a really good analytical framework for thinking about you know, what does the grocery checkout person have to do with the berry picker? And, and there's a lot of connections that need to be made, but I think it's, it's happening. Do you think those certification schemes like fair trade mm-hmm. or these sort of consumer-based models for ensuring accountability, mm-hmm. do you think those are durable? I think they are, at this point, some of our best potential. Okay. I don't think they're unproblematic. Um, I think that fair trade has... Um, as a as a model, has received some really good critique. Um, I use some of those critiques in my food and labor class. But I think, in general, what it does is it it at least opens a set of questions that need to be opened. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think there's within food systems or the food movement, there is always this tension between incremental baby step change yeah. and and revolutionary, or as uh, Eric Holt Jimenez will call it, sort of regime change, mm-hmm. right? I think seeing that as an either or is really dangerous because I think you can have a model of revolution in mind on the back burner and work towards it in incremental places. Hmm. And I think that fair trade is one of those incremental steps. Um, I don't like I always sort of, and this is just like my personal politics, but mm-hmm. I always sort of see these sort of private regulatory mm-hmm. structures as maybe even impeding intervention mm-hmm. by the state. Um, they can, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So I'm always like skeptical of them at first, but I think that, that at the same time they do yeah. I provide think, some sense of legitimacy. And, and I think you can do both, right? I think that this is this is what I, for example, in Julie Guthman's work, what I really like about her um, her work that she's done. She's critiqued organics vociferously, mm-hmm. right, and has critiqued how organic certification actually served in a number of ways to quell what was really radical mm-hmm. sort of demands on the part of organic farmers um, and people who wanted to consume those products. But I think what she says in a couple of her pieces is at the end of the day, if I pick this organic thing, there is the possibility that there is less poisoning of the people who are picking it. Right. right? So I think we can we can have a set of ideals. We can have a set of um what we would want in our in our wonderful just utopia, uh, perfect world, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, while still, while still working for things that get us closer to that, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's where that's where I see some good opportunity in the classroom is uh, is students often have that ideal, that utopia, um, and I love it because it's incredibly energizing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more I've learned about the food system and the more that I teach about the food system and the more that I research it is that it's, there's a lot of gray area and there's a lot of need to maintain balance and hold lots of things in your hands at the same time. Right. And I think as I like move away from undergrad, being, you know, hardened by (laughs) By the world, our reality. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's really important to keep that ideal utopia in mind, because if you don't have that vision, you don't have, 
the end goal that you're working towards, right? But yeah, I think that, you know, fair trade is imperfect, right? The fair food campaign, incredibly important, not perfect, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But if you look at the the impacts of them in in material realities or in the amount of chemicals that are being used, that's where it's like, we're getting there. (laughs) Actually, yeah. We're getting getting a little closer. Something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that note, yeah. I think we can wrap up. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Chewing the Fat, a podcast from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Teresa Mars's book, Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont, is available online and in stores today. This episode was produced by Austin Brunyarski, editing by myself and Thomas Hagen, mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration for sponsoring Teresa Morris's visit. We're empowered by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this content, help us spread the word about Chewing the Fat by sharing it with your friends, subscribing, rating us on Apple Podcasts, or writing us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. Maybe all the above. We'll see you in two weeks.